Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 11. When it comes to algebra over continuous quantities, Keltham says, gesturing at the tactics written between the steps of the equations, we have rules like being allowed to multiply both sides by the same quantity, or divide both sides by the same quantity, so long as it isn't zero. If you imagine building a mind to reason inside a universe that was full of hidden order that could be described by algebra, if it was an observer surrounded by, like, piles of fruit containing twice as many cherries as apples, that sort of thing, it was just how that world worked. Then you could imagine building that mind with rules like, if I believe an equation, I should also believe that equation with both sides multiplied by the same quantity, or, if I believe an equation, I can believe that equation with both sides divided by the same quantity, so long as I already believe that quantity isn't zero. I say this to introduce a new topic, the concept of hidden order within the rules of reasoning themselves. There are hidden patterns and deep explanations to be found in this subject matter, as in my world, there was a reason why snowflakes had sixfold symmetry. As a very simple example, the rule, you can divide by non-zero quantities, can be seen as a pure special case of, you can multiply by any quantity. To say you can divide both sides by two, is the same as saying you can multiply both sides by one two. The reason you can't divide both sides by zero, is that zero is the only continuous quantity which lacks an inverse. Once you see things from that angle, in fact, you might say that it's a simpler viewpoint to say that there's just one rule to use there, about valid inference in algebra the rule that you can multiply both sides by any quantity. Say just that, and you don't need that darned rule with the extra complication about, oh well, you can divide by anything, unless it might be zero. You just have the rule that you can multiply by anything, and the rule that everything except zero has an inverse. You could also add the rule about division. Nothing invalid would happen to you if you did, but it would be redundant. The mind you were constructing could reach the same conclusions either way. Through perceiving hidden order in the rules of reasoning, you would be able to simplify the mind's thought processes and arrive to the same ends, though it might also take longer to reason that way. It might take extra steps if you eliminated the extra rule. But meanwhile, back in the real world, we deal more with the equivalent of triangles and red things than the equivalent of numbers and addition. I mean, this world has both, but still, let's go back to shapes and colors and sizes. What sort of truth-preserving rules analogous to you can multiply both sides by any quantity in algebra might we use to combine beliefs like these? Z. All triangular things are red. H. All red things are large. All triangular things are large. Why are they so inconsistently math? That's the conclusion you want, yes. What rules did you follow and what road did you walk to get there? If you were making a child from scratch and you stood too far back of the child's future situation to know exactly what situations they would encounter, or what conclusions they would need. How would you make the child to reason to Q from Z and H? This question is somehow really confusing to them. Well, if all triangular things are red and all red things are large, then you can't have a triangular thing that isn't large. That'd mean something was triangular and not red, or red and not large. Ah, well, that is a very persuasive argument, I am totally persuaded. But what rule are you using to find this persuasive? What shard of structure embedded within me leads me to find it persuasive? Is it the sort of rule that has some important exception we need to know about, like not being able to divide by zero? Does it only work sometimes and sometimes give wrong results? 
Is it maybe a bit of complete nonsense that somehow got embedded into both of us, causing us to both arrive at the same wrong conclusions? If we don't even know what rules we're following, how could we begin to tell? Imagine getting to hell and being locked in a room with Rilatha, and now she has to explain everything you're doing wrong, only you don't know what you're doing at all, and she has trouble empathizing because, I'm guessing, all the nonsense in our heads is contrary to her own nature. Think of how much of her valuable time you could save her, not to mention your own time locked in the room, if you actually knew which rules were operating inside you, to cause you to be persuaded by arguments like that one. So what renders persuasive Z and H implies Q, or your own statement for there to be a non-large triangle implies either a non-red triangle or a non-large red thing? How would you construct an entity from scratch to be persuaded by a statement like that? These people are stunningly motivated to skip through as much as is possible of the being locked in a room with a frustrated devil once they die. They are very aware that it will suck, and they are so eager to get to do less of it. They do not understand Keltham's question at all. An entity that wasn't doing that kind of reasoning would be really bad at inference and waste a lot of time. Kids will just naturally pick it up. They actually tend to overgeneralize. I have a kid sister who'd say things like, all boys have long hair, after she'd seen three. I think it'd have an exception for, like, cases where we're using the words differently in different contexts. Like, if we say, all criminals are punished and all punishments are painful, that doesn't mean all criminals are painful. Even Keltham has managed to pick up on the rise in energy levels in the room. He's not sure why this math marketing tactic is so much more effective than other marketing tactics in Chiliacs, but he's willing to roll with it. Though he should probably also be careful not to overuse it, whatever the acid is he's doing, especially when he has no idea why it's working. He sets aside a question about what kind of game theory criminals use here, and what sort of bizarre equilibrium results, to an enormous ill-organized heap of similar plaintive questions. Keltham goes over to one of the few remaining empty spaces on the wall whiteboard. He'd rather not have it laundry magicked clean just yet. Z. All male objects have long hair. H. All long-haired objects wear shirts. When you're confused, one of the macro-reasoning strategies is to find the smallest, simplest problems that still contain your confusion. Can you state a general rule like, it's okay to add two to both sides of any equation that covers how to combine Z and H, which also says how to combine Z and H, without explicitly mentioning Z and H? like stating a rule for adding two to both sides of an equation, which doesn't mention the particular equation you're using. That takes on some of the challenge of creating an agent who'll reason in the world, when you don't know which particular equations or statements that agent will encounter. You mean like, change the sentences to, all some things have a trait, all things with a trait have a second trait? Well, yes. You don't have to work out the entire hidden order all at once, in order to make progress on it a piece at a time. Speaking of macro-reasoning strategies, before you've worked out that it's okay to add any quantity to a balanced equation, it's fine to start by noticing just that it's okay to add two specifically to any balanced equation. That's a legitimate step towards starting to put the pieces together for yourself. Require, Z generalized. All objects with trait 1 have trait 2, require, H generalized. All objects with trait 2 have trait 3, conclude, Q generalized. All objects with trait 1 have trait 3. When you build an entity with a rule in its mind that looks for a case where it believes any instance of Z-generalized and H-generalized and concludes Q-generalized, you're building an entity that's operating a much broader necessary truth than the very narrow universal truth 
that connects, if all triangles are red and all red things are large, then all triangles are large. You might be able to build a few dozen fairly general rules like that into a mind, whose outputs feed into each other as inputs, and have thereby given it a noticeably sized shard of the law that connects premises and conclusions, instead of just a very narrow guideline about shapes and sizes in particular. Does anyone want to try naming another candidate for a belief-manipulating rule like that? There's the opposite, like, no objects with trait 1 have trait 2. Or, uh, I guess you'd want, no objects with trait 1 have trait 2. All objects with trait 2 have trait 3. No objects with trait 1, no. That doesn't actually hold. No objects with trait 1 have trait 2. All objects with trait 3 have trait 2. No objects with trait 1 have trait 3. Another girl says, a little too competitively for this to sound like helpfully supplementing the first one's train of thought. Well, I'm starting to run out of room on this wall, so forgive me if I write that down in Dathalani shorthand, says Keltham. For all Z, if T1 of Z holds, then not T2 of Z. For all H, if T3 of H holds, then T2 of H underline. Therefore, for all Q, if T1 of Q holds, then not T3 of Q. Now this is a valid reasoning rule to be sure, says Keltham, but just like dividing over a balanced equation can be seen as multiplying by an inverse, I think we don't need to add this whole rule to our entity. The form of this rule looks really quite similar in some ways to that earlier rule about z-generalized, h-generalized, and q-generalized. I think we can add a smaller new rule to our entity, which already has that previous rule, and get this rule back out as a special case like adding the inverse operation to an algebra that already has the rule about multiplying over a balanced equation and automatically getting out the power to divide over a balanced equation. I don't predict, based on your past performance, that you can derive the missing rule on your own, but beliefs like that ought to be tested rather than just assumed. Want to surprise me? They're so upset not to get it. They're not getting it, though. They're distracted by trying to follow the Doth-Elon notation, and they're not quite generalizing far enough, proposing variants on the rule that aren't actually simpler. It's encouraging that his students aren't showing any visible sign of emotional disturbance at the prediction, or at failing to overcome it. They have some traces of Dathalani dignity, at least. Keltham was wondering whether a lack of training and dignity would require him to back off a little on challenges like those, but his students' dignity is unperturbed so far as he can see. For all H... If T3 of H holds, then T2 of H underline. Therefore, for all H, if not T2 of H holds, then not T3 of H. So long as we have this reasoning tactic in our tactical repertoire, go ahead and take a moment to convince yourself that you couldn't cast an illusion violating it. We can combine it with our previous rule to get the combined rule we wanted. Rule 1. For all Z, if T1 of Z holds, then not T2 of Z. This is our premise. Rule 2. For all H, if T3 of H holds, then T2 of H. This is another premise. Underline. Rule 3. For all H, if not T2 of H holds, then not T3 of H. This is derived from Rule 2 using modus tollens, a logical inference rule. Underline. And finally, Rule 4. For all Q, if T1 of Q holds, then not T3 of Q. This is obtained from a syllogism using Rule 1 and Rule 3. Anyone want to propose yet another universal rule? Here's some shorthand language to help you express yourself. K is blue or K is red. K is blue and K is not red. For every K, it is not the case that K is blue and K is red. If K is blue, then K is small. It isn't wrong that K is not blue. They take a while just to figure out how the symbols work, and then they're full of ideas. 
For every k, k is either blue or k is not blue. If k is blue, then it is true that k is blue. If k is not blue, then it is not the case that k is blue. That doesn't count. Yes, it does. It's like the one equals one thing. Except we're not really using blue to mean anything, right? We can just write those with T, like Dath Elon does it. Now they're thinking with average intelligence. While they're doing that, Keltham will helpfully write down some statements for them to decide on as valid or not valid. If it is the case that if P implies Q, then P, then P. If P, then Q... If it's true that if P, then Q, then P. If it's true that if P, then Q, then P, then P. Uh, I think that's not true. Like, if P isn't true, then... It's basically just saying, is P being true, required from the fact that if it's true that... Okay. If P implies Q, then PI is not necessarily true. It could be, like, say P is men are immortal, and Q is they will all become ninth circle wizards. So obviously you can have if P, then Q, but P is false. That's not what it's asking. It's saying, if P implies Q does imply P then does that mean P is always true? No. Like, okay, what's something where P implies Q implies P? I'm just not sure that's a thing at all. I think I see the problem. The Taldane word implies probably means all sorts of vague things besides, anyways, let's use material implication to narrowly denote the particular kind of implies I used here. Now, we're going to have to erase this wall soon, but let's look back at the blue circles. In particular... Let's look at this blue circle containing a large red triangle, a large blue square, a small blue square, and a large red square. The way I define material implication, we can take the statement, for all z, z being triangular, materially implies z being red, and say that it's true of every object z, including the ones that aren't triangles. We could look at this small blue square and say of it truthfully, if a small blue square is triangular, then a small blue square is red. The way we're defining material implication, that symbol I wrote like this, Keltham points to an implies symbol. That would be a true thing to say. Why define it that way? So that the statement over here, Keltham points to, for every H, if H is red, then H is large, can be true when we evaluate it at every object H could refer to, including the objects that aren't red at all. If we said that red H materially implies large H was false whenever H wasn't red, putting a blue square in the world would mean we could not say of it. For every object in the world, the redness of that object materially implies its largeness. Now want to take another shot at if P materially implying Q materially implies P, then P. True across all possible worlds, or false in some of them. So P implies Q implies P if there aren't any P. Well, P isn't quantified here. It's not ranging over possible objects. P is here some proposition that could be either true or false, not an object with a property like redness. So it's that P materially implies Q whenever P is false, whether or not Q is true. That seems... no, that makes sense. That's like... I read a theological argument like that once. It's very hard for Keltham at this point to predict what chelish practical topologists will get instantly versus not at all. Maybe once he's had longer than a day to experiment and figure it out, He'll give them another couple of half-minutes on if it is the case that if P then Q implies P, then P. But if they haven't gotten it by then, he'll leave coming to a definite decision about that as a homework problem and tell them to get back to inventing other logical rules. If P then Q holds if P is false, and also occasionally if P is true and the world happens to be that way. 
So, if P then Q implies P, if the reason P implies Q isn't that P is false. Well, if P is false, then P implies Q doesn't imply P. It can't, since P is false. So, if P implies Q does somehow imply P, then that would be because P is true? No, it'd be not because P is false, but that doesn't mean P is definitely true, we just don't know. They're still all two external appearances without a lot of experience reading Chellish people. Very calm and unbothered by this. I'll leave that one as an exercise to try to solve afterwards. Come back tomorrow with your own best guess, even if you haven't proven it, about whether it's necessarily true, necessarily false, or neither. Now let me present you with a different puzzle, one that starts to lead into a higher lesson. I was constructing an agent, but, oops, I forgot to give it the or concept. Keltham points to where was written. It's got all the other concepts here like for all, and not implies, but darn it, I just forgot to give it the or concept. Can you form a statement that's equivalent to for every object H, H is red, or H is blue, out of the concepts I did remember to put in, so I can explain that important fact to my poor, confused entity? For every H, H is either red or blue. Equal sign what? Sorry for making you clean up my mess there, Keltham adds. But the entity's already created, and I can't redesign its mind now. Giggles. For every object H, H not red implies H is blue, someone calls out almost instantly. Why can they, but not, never mind. Keltham glances at that name tag. Correct. Wait, oops, I forgot to give them the implies symbol, too. Anything you can do now? That was Asmodia. A implies B is the same as, for all and where A is true, B is true. If I try to write that out, I use the implies symbol, though, kill them and start over? Sorry, I screwed up even more. They're already sapient, and governance would take a dim view of killing them. Or it's Galarian, and they just end up in an afterlife anyways, and hell will be annoyed if you made extra work for them. A implies B is the same as not B implies not A. That doesn't help. Construct a C, where C is everything that is in both A and B. For all H in A, H is in C, says Meritzal. Where are you getting a both A and B? I haven't sketched out how I do it yet, but I'm sure I could. It's obviously the sort of thing that's not hard to specify. Without implies, though, X is in C if X is in A and X is in B. No implies. You do have the and symbol and the for all symbol and the not symbol, and the parentheses, and the object variable symbols, of course, and the red and blue function symbols. That's all you've got, though. You can't bring in Taldane language for describing things beyond that. Keltham taps again where the whiteboard now shows, with its last gasp of open space. For every H, H is either red or blue. For every H, it is not the case that H is both red and blue. And it is not the case that H is neither red nor blue. Paxi Ventures? Carissa is being a bad student. This is, in part, because she is no longer in school and no longer feels with aching intensity that the entirety of her being as a person is her performance in school, and being lashed for inattentiveness doesn't hold the soul-consuming horror it once did either. It is in part because her mind keeps running ahead. She can't always see the answers to the specific questions— and probably she should focus her attention on them at some point, 
to crystallize the skill of turning all her thoughts into the crisp, precise, symbolic, bounded versions of them, but she can see the broad outlines of what the questions let you do. Everything. Maybe, if you're a god. If you're a human, how would you express the best outcome a human can reasonably get is to live such that when they die and go to hell, they are useful? For all humans. But no, she's not really making a claim about all humans. She's really only interested in the implications of this question for one human, and the other ones are relevant because she knows exactly how exceptional she is. There exists a human, such that, in the space of all eternities, for that human, ordered by how strongly preferred they are. The most preferred is... Well, no, it wouldn't be hell, because of all possible eternities there are certainly some better ones. This is of course not an argument against hell. It's not like she could formulate any other important claims about the world, either. It is an argument against sucking at thinking. It is an argument for... If there were a book that tried to convince you, what would it say? Indeed. Or rather, we just need the second part. A red object counts as red or not blue. We don't demand that only one side be true. In that last bit of improvised whiteboard, Keltham extends his last equation and then writes down one more on the edge of the wall below. For every H, H is either blue or red is equivalent to for every H. If H is not red, then H is blue and this is equivalent to for every H. It is not the case that H is neither blue nor red. For every H, H is both blue and red is equivalent to for every H. It is not the case that H is either not red or not blue, and this is equivalent to it is not the case that if H is red, then H is not blue. Now, given that, if you have not, you can make and out of or, or make or out of and, or make either one out of materially implies, why not just design an entity that thinks in terms of implication? Why bother making an entity that tends to think in terms of P is true or R is true, instead of if P is false, then R is true? This is not a theoretical question. If your mind works anything like mine does, your mind sometimes thinks in terms of or, and not just implies. You've probably thought using and too. Why is a human mind, which includes your mind, designed so inelegantly? Nervous glances. Because humans were given free will and it was done very haphazardly and made us worse at reasoning like the gods, says Tonya, when no one else has said anything for a moment. Actually, there's something of a questionable assumption I've been making, which is that your biology is a possibly modified version of biology that got copied off of a branch of time. I don't think Taldane has a word for it. That's very close in branching time to Dathilan. I think Dathilan can't see your world, can't be affected by it, but I did manage to show up in this world at all, even if that's a very rare phenomenon. So your world can see my world, be causally affected by it, even if my materializing like this very rarely happens. And your bodies look a lot like mine. And more importantly, I can eat your food without immediately falling over dead, which implies a lot of shared hidden order between our biology, which wouldn't exist without common ancestry. If it's possible for me and somebody from this world to have kids, which is mostly what I'd expect, that would absolutely prove the point. Where the point is that while some stuff may have modified you relative to where a Dath Ilani starts, and Dath Ilan may have developed and diverged some from whenever your biology was copied from our cousin or ancestral world, remind me of how old human life on Galarian is again? Human biology on Galarian is, I would strongly guess, basically a copy of Dath Ilani biology. Some of my distant ancestors or cousins got materialized here and had kids, maybe. Or some god read the heredity code, 
for one of us and materialize some entities like that. If all of that is true, then the reason your underlying mind design looks like it was slapped together by monkeys on drugs is the same reason our baseline mind design looks like it was slapped together by monkeys on drugs. I wasn't born like this. We have to give people extensive training to get them to work at all correctly, instead of them just working correctly straight out of the womb, the way we would if we were designed by sane designers instead of, well, the thing that actually made us. A weird pseudo-non-entity that had literally no idea what the ass it was doing. Frankly, it's sort of a big topic here, though it sure is a fundamental one, so I'll probably get to the details at some time. The point is, I fully expect that by the time we're done in class here, you will be looking over your mind design and thinking that you could accidentally sneeze a better mind design than that. I'm not quite sure what the given free will thing was about. The Taldane term free will doesn't translate well into baseline, so we may not have whatever you were given, but trust me, your species' mind design was horrible crap even before then. You can tell this because I had to go through lessons similar to what you're going through now. Though if free will makes you even worse at sanity, which sure is plausible given this total mess of a planet, I probably need to have that explained to me at some point. I don't suppose it's easy to describe? Horrified silence. She does not want to interact with this, but she has the twin qualifications of being particularly unlikely to be executed for misstepping. It'd be conspicuous. Keltham can definitely tell her apart from everyone else, and having spent the last half hour dwelling on it. I don't think I have ever encountered the theory that the gods were copying, she says, but it does seem odd for there to be a world with a longer history and humans that came about some other way. I think that these lessons have helped me make more sense of the free will thing, actually. It used to be that humans didn't make mistakes of reasoning, but also that they didn't have their own goals, just the goals of the gods they served. It sounds like... You think maybe those necessarily went together? That it wasn't possible for humans to stop making mistakes of reasoning while being more than automata? Yeah, that'd make its own kind of sense. The event your history has down as humans suddenly acquired free will could have been a magical template superposed on human biology, producing agents working for gods, and then somehow that magical template stopped working, and suddenly you had the original humans again. I do not know nearly enough of your history to guess what parts of the template versus original human nature were locked together. I'm guessing at a lot here. I'd ask if the magical template made people non-conscious, non-experiencing, but I wouldn't expect you to have any way of knowing that, given the general fuzziness of your prehistory. That whole scenario would actually be a pretty optimistic result from my standpoint. It means you don't have additional features making you crazier, and Dathalani training should still work on people here with high baseline intelligence. The scenario you described matches all our histories, but we don't know details of the magical template. Aside from that, the gods were divided over the change that made it stop working. Yeah, I'm not going to say details like that are unimportant. They're obviously hugely important, and at some point I want to know everything that's known about it. But they're not obviously urgent details, especially compared to the general project of me transferring knowledge Galarian will need for industrialization and scaling up to fight the world wound. So back to where your mind design actually comes from. I'll endeavor to be brief because this lesson is mainly about validity, but now we're talking about how shards and reflections of validity even got into human minds at all, and soon we're going to ask whether there's maybe something better than the version of validity we have, and I'm not sure how you could reason well about those topics if you had no idea where your mind design came from in the first place. This part is actually a pretty simple idea. 
If anything, you should be careful not to overthink it. You know how a pair of tall parents will probably, though not always, have a kid who's taller than average, and a pair of short parents will probably, though not always, have a kid who's shorter than average. It may help for the sake of concreteness to know that inside you there are extremely tiny, extremely long spirals of stuff Taldane doesn't have a name for, but capable of encoding information. Like, imagine there's four kinds of tiny parts that can make up each bit of spiral, labeled 0, 1, 2, and 3. So a section of the spiral might read 1032, that is, it'd be the second kind of bit, connected to the first kind of bit, connected to the fourth kind of bit, connected to the third kind of bit. Each spiral is around three billion of those units long, but the parts are so tiny that even three billion of them curled up in spirals are still too tiny to see. Your body is full of identical copies of your version, and it carries the information that told your body how to develop fingers and toes and a liver and so on when you were forming in your mother's womb. Variations in that code, between individuals, might cause some to grow up taller and some to grow up shorter. You got half of your spiral sections, they're broken up into 23 pairs of sections, from your father and half from your mother, which is why a pair of taller parents will tend to have taller kids. Now suppose that taller parents tend to have more kids than shorter parents, then the next generation will end up taller than the previous generation. The variations in codes that tell bodies to construct taller bodies will be more common among the next generation's inner spirals. Pile on one change after another, after another, after another, that contributes to some couples having more kids than another. Even though each change is a single alteration, if you iterate that process thousands of times, millions of times, it can build whole complicated parts. But it builds them without foresight, without planning. Every part of your body is made up of accumulation of changes that started as copying errors in the tiny spirals. They're mistakes that happen to work. That's also where your mind design comes from, from the copying errors, and from some of those copying errors leading parents to have fewer kids, and those errors dying out of the population, and a few copying errors accidentally constructing people who had more kids, and those variations spreading throughout the population. If I was actually focusing on this topic properly, I'd sketch the design of an eyeball on the wall, and show how it can develop in tiny changes starting from a single light-sensitive spot on the forehead of some tiny crawling creature a hundred million years ago. For now, the key thing to know, going back to our actual current subject, validity, is that your mind design accreted on the ability to think using and, and the ability to think using or, and the ability to think about stuff implying other stuff, and the ability to imagine facts being true about all the objects inside a collection. It's not all quite as redundant as it looks. The human native ability to reason about or isn't quite the or that appears in very simple logic. We're more likely to say an object is red or blue, meaning that it's either one or the other, but not both, and less likely to say that this table is brown or not green, considering that in fact it is both brown and not green. We are, in teaching ourselves to reason using the sharper, simpler forms of logic, repurposing bits of our mind away from their original context and stripping off real functionality along the way. But that's part of the story of why we have such redundant facilities for thinking logically and an or and implies all at the same time. So would you like to guess now as to whether I'm about to tell you about some new connectors that would let your mind expand to even more powerful ideas, represent ideas that native human concepts can't represent at all? Is he going to do that? That would be so cool. When I was a bit younger and learning this stuff for the first time, I went straight to the Watcher the adult who was there to make sure the older kids weren't teaching us anything too wrong, 
and demanded that I immediately be taught the most powerful kind of logic there was. The watcher told me that the logic I was learning was the most powerful kind of logic on offer, that it was, in fact, the most powerful kind of logic that could exist. I didn't see how anyone could possibly know that even if it was true, so I figured this was another of the lies they tell children, or maybe that the best kind of logic was probably being kept secret by the keepers, those being the people who would learn a more powerful kind of logic, if it existed, and was too dangerous for everybody to have. I wanted that for myself, so I tried inventing other kinds of logic, with more powerful symbols in it, symbols that could connect three or even four propositions together, instead of just the one or two symbol connectors the older kids were telling me about. But before I tell you about the results of that particular journey of thinking, and whether or not it did turn out to be a lie, they tell children in the end, let me pause and ask another question first. In algebra, we have rules for producing new equations from old equations, or combining old equations. Here we have rules for producing new statements from old statements, if those statements are written in a particular language. Both algebra and the statement rules obey the higher principle of validity. We have ways of comparing equations and statements to worlds, to see if they're true or false, and if an equation or statement is true in a world, the rules for manipulating it should produce only more true equations or true statements. In the world of statements, we manage to reduce or to and and not. In the world of algebra, we reduce the rule divide both sides by a non-zero quantity to multiply both sides by an inverse. Can we in some way combine the rules of algebra and the rules of statements, since they are both born of the same truth-preserving principle? Can we reduce algebra rules to statement rules, or reduce statement rules to algebra rules, and so simplify our mastery of truth-preservation? This one's actually quite hard to solve from scratch at our intelligence level. I didn't get it as a kid and wouldn't expect myself to get it now, if I didn't already know it. But it is important to know your own emptiness before trying to fill yourself, so go and speak aloud any really bad wrong answers you come up with here. I mean, you could write the rules of algebra in statement logic. Is that what you mean? Like, a plus b equals sign c if, and then a bunch of stuff that correctly defines what plus is? I don't know what stuff, but I think there'd be stuff. Merrickstell says. Show me your shot at it. I've been wrong once or twice guessing what you all can't do. Uh, okay. A plus B equals sign C if, uh, oh, I think I actually only know what I'd do if A and B and C were all whole numbers. I'll take it. If they're whole numbers, they're made of ones. A plus B equals sign C if, uh, the process of taking ones from each side gets you zero on both. She bites her lip. But then you still have to define taking one, I guess. Go ahead and define it then. Don't worry too much about doing it wrong the first time. This one is hard, and I'm impressed you're even trying. Actually, I'm wondering if you've encountered something reflecting the correct answer from somewhere else in Galarian mathematics, because if you're literally doing this part from absolute scratch, it's seriously impressive. She beams at him. Minus one is, maybe you could do something with... A contains one more thing than B if, for everything in B, there's a thing in A, and for everything in A, there's a thing in B plus one. No. Now I've just needed to invent plus. Maybe I can do that. A is B plus. No, sorry, I don't know. If you don't know the right answer, make up a wrong one. Maybe you'll be able to see why it's wrong and correct it, so long as you think it out loud. And saying things out loud is a straightforward way to learn to think them out loud. I don't even know a wrong one. What is it exactly that you don't know again? 
try to tell me out loud what it is that you want to do and can't see any way to do. I want to say here's what it is to add one to something, using just and and not, and implies, and for all. And you can go for all numbers. This number plus one equals something, but I don't know how to say what the something is. Hint desired or undesired. What kind of fucking question is that? Maybe he's just very sadistic, and this is all an elaborate game he is playing with them. I think I might need one, she says, very lightly. If you take the hint now, you'll never know whether or not you needed a hint or just more time. But we're trying to industrialize a planet, and that's probably more important than you ever knowing whether you could have punched above your measured intelligence level and discovered the deeper orders of validity from scratch, so, yeah, hint. You cannot build add one out of only and not implies for all. I previously showed you a system that had predicates like blue and red, which took in the kind of object that for all quantifies over, and spat out truth or falsehood depending on whether the object was red or not. There's no way to build add one out of only those materials because add one takes in an object, a number, and spits out another object. This doesn't mean your system has to start out knowing what add one means. It does mean that you're going to have to conjure up an add one symbol that maps objects to objects and then start describing what it means. But that description needs to talk about add one as a hypothetical function whose properties will be described, not build it purely out of the predicate symbols and logical connectors. You are also going to need a symbol equal sign for equality between two objects. That one is usually assumed primitive, that even if the system starts out knowing nothing else about the objects it describes, it knows how to tell when two objects are equal. Equal sign takes in two objects and spits out truth or falsehood. There's a more sophisticated trick you can pull to not need to introduce a special symbol for add one. Roughly, you say, for all functions from objects to objects, if that function has these properties, this stuff follows. But that would involve quantifying over functions, which we can skip for now. So, to reiterate, you get to conjure the symbol for add one from nowhere. You get to declare by fiat and premise that it takes in an object and spits out an object. You don't, however, get to assume that it has any behaviors beyond that, or means anything in particular, except for whatever statements you make using the add one symbol. Same for two object functions like add or multiply. You can declare that there's a plus symbol and that it takes in two objects and spits out a third object, but anything about which objects has to be described by you, and that's what makes the symbols meaningful. Okay, she says shakily. I think I need time to think. Anyone else want to try what she tried doing at all? Trying something and failing is more impressive than not trying at all. Carissa is too busy worrying about whether things can be both true and heretical to pay this the amount of concentrated attention it clearly deserves. But I think you want to start by saying what zero is and what one is. I'm not sure what that is, mind. I was thinking maybe zero is for all things not that thing. But that doesn't seem quite right. Well, indeed. If it was the case that no object was zero, there wouldn't be a number called that. What does make zero special among the numbers? If you have any ideas here, say them informally first. Saying it formally is usually harder, and it's usually wiser to solve the easy problems before you tackle the hard ones. Well, it's what you get if you take A away from A for any A. Can you say that formally? I don't see how to until we have defined addition or subtraction, which is the thing we were trying to do. The thing I'd say is for all k, k plus zero equals k, but I don't think that's meaningful if I haven't said what plus is yet. Remember how we managed to build or out of implies and not, 
and that wasn't even set up on purpose by anyone or anything. It's just the human mind being thrown together by a design process that included more structure than the strict minimum. Each time you say something like, for all k, k plus zero equals k, you constrain the meaning that plus and zero can have. Imagine looking at these blue circles, each a possible world. Imagine that instead of colored shapes inside them, there are objects that might be numbers, a function that might be plus. Every time you make another statement like, for all k, k plus zero equals k, you kick out some of the worlds and mappings where the function you mapped onto, plus it, and the object you mapped onto zero, didn't always eat an object and zero and spit that same object back out again. Make enough statements like that, and maybe you can narrow down the possible worlds to ones that only contain objects that look like the numbers you know. That, from a certain perspective, is what it means to define numbers in arithmetic. To find statements such that anything they are true about must be numbers in arithmetic. Got any more statements like it? Somebody wipe this wall, please. We'll want to start writing down the statements like for all k, k plus zero equals k. Oh, she thinks of it before he's halfway done. Zero is the only number where zero plus zero equals zero. I said that poorly, but... By all means say it better, then. Zero plus zero equals zero. For every k, if k is not zero, then the sum of k and k is not equal to k. Progress. But not zero isn't a thing in this language. Not takes in propositions, which have the values of truth or falsehood, and spits out falsehood or truth. Not four isn't a number, or if you wanted it to talk about the collection of all numbers except four, we'd have to start introducing collections, and that's a big old subject. Not equal to isn't already a symbol in our language either, and in fact you don't particularly need to define a new symbol for it. Next rewrite. For every k, either k equals zero and k plus k equals k, or it's not the case that k plus k equals k. She writes this rather than saying it, because it seems like it'd be quite unpleasant to say and harder to tweak while speaking. She writes it with prestidigitation because she has better control and precision than a student and they ought to remember it. Good try, but your statement doesn't quite narrow down the possible worlds to where you wanted. It includes worlds where it's not the case that k plus k equals k is true of every number, including the one you called zero. Can anyone see how to fix it? Can't you just add k is not equal to zero to the second part? Works unless I've missed something myself. But do you want to write out exactly what you mean there? To make sure it's not just my own imagination supplying the answer I think is correct? For every k, either k equals zero and k plus k equals k, or k is not zero, and it's not the case that k plus k equals k. He supposes it's good that people are finding so many detailed ways to be wrong, exhibiting them early, and getting them out of the way. We haven't said anything about adding, outside the system, up at our level, rules for adding in parentheses that weren't in the written formula. So that could mean either of, for every k, either k equals zero and k plus k equals k, or k is not zero, and it's not the case that k plus k equals k. Or for every k, either k equals zero and k plus k equals k, or it's the case that k is not zero, and it's not the case that k plus k equals k. Second one, the girl says. Then it looks good to me, keeping in mind that these don't exactly match standard forms I learned, since we're making them up as we go and my own intelligence is not at the level where I will reliably spot errors on the first pass. I'm not sure quite why I feel the need to say this. It seems like the sort of thing that should be obvious. But if I'm the one who makes an error, or it just looks like that, speak up. If you're right, you get to be impressive. And if you're wrong, you need to know which mistake you made, 
Keltham keeps prodding the group for a while, dropping hints as needed, until he's pretty sure they've written enough random rules to yield in their combination all the constraints of first-order arithmetic, except for the induction axiom schema. If anybody from Chiliacs brilliantly pulls the induction axiom schema out of their ass, he's going to be sure they're getting it from somewhere. Maybe Dathalani geniuses can pull that kind of shit at their age, he doubts it, but the geniuses of this world are only as smart as him, unless they're wearing intelligence headbands. They do not brilliantly pull the induction axiom schema out of their asses or out of his mind, which they are not reading. They do mostly manage to follow along through all the rules of first-order arithmetic, and they seem to be having fun about it. Once they've got a nearly full set of rules, Keltham remarks that the last puzzle piece for identifying the numbers, as well as they can ever be identified in a certain sense he's not going into right now, is one he really doesn't expect them to get unhinted, and then he drops on them the infinite axiom schema for induction, trying as best he can to explain why you'd need it to pinpoint the numbers. After clearing up any misapprehensions about that as best he can, Keltham is ready to move on to his next point. We're running through things a lot faster than I went through them as a kid, and I'm probably accidentally leaving out important ideas along the way. All of this would take more like a month, if you were eight years old and doing the exercises, even if you were doing nothing else. But you may recall that sometime earlier, I posed some puzzles about asking for examples of necessary truths, and why they were ever good for anything, and what it means to say that one equals one is a necessary truth, what you ought to expect to see happen as a result, especially given that a necessary truth should still end up being true, no matter what happens to you, if it could happen inside any illusion depicted in full detail. We now have a language in which I can give some of my own answers there, but before then, does anybody want to take a renewed shot at saying what it is we're talking about, and what we should expect to see happen, if we say that one equals one is a necessary truth. That if it's not true, we just can't do any reasoning in a formal system at all? Does reality need to care what you can't reason about? Perhaps you can depict an illusion in full detail, in which one does not equal one, and we will need to construct a new logic, which does not take as primitive the assertion that every object equals itself, in order to describe that illusion. And you can't depict an illusion in full detail in which one does not equal one. What about clouds drifting across the sky and sometimes separating? One cloud equals two clouds. It doesn't equal one cloud. Divide both sides of the equation by cloud, and there you have it. They stare concernedly at him. More to the point, how would you depict one, the successor of zero, inside an illusion? You can depict one cherry in a bowl of fruit, in an illusion. How would you depict one, the successor of zero, as it appears in our collections of statements? You just have to put the symbols. Then we have merely depicted the symbols talking about one, in our illusion, not depicted one itself. That's like making an illusion of a piece of paper with cherry written on it, and saying you made an illusion of a cherry. Some particularly daring girls, in the middle of the discussion of the induction axiom, sent around a crumbled piece of paper as girls do. It flew between desks, as wizarding girls do. Its text was in infernal, as chelish wizarding girls do. It read... Is Keltham a sadist? Yen. The vote leaned yes. Keltham's audience squirms anxiously at this question. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. <laughs>